oh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Walker and I were talking and, 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 you know, I felt like I had some ideas about Palm Sunday. And what we traditionally do is he preaches Palm Sunday and then he also gets Good Friday because I'm too busy working on my Easter message. <laughs> and uh, this year we switched it up because when you preach five Easter's in a row, sometimes it's not that, not that the topic can run dry, but sometimes our minds can run dry. So uh, I'm excited to hear what God has for us this morning. Amen? Amen. So let's uh, open our hearts and our minds up to the Holy Spirit this morning and let him reveal to us what he has for us today. Pastor Walker, come. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, it's good to see so many of your smiling faces. Um, Hopefully, I can get this mic to work. Sorry about that. Good deal. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm super, super excited to be able to have the honor to share with you this morning what I believe God has put on my heart. I know that you all have a great afternoon filled with lots of Easter egg hunts and Reese's eggs. Amen, somebody, right? Uh, And so much family fun. So I want to be short, sweet, uh, but very direct and effective today in what I want to tell you about the risen Jesus. Um, And hopefully in this message, uh, I can make you think a little bit. Because for so long, I think that we celebrate Easter just as another religious activity that we do. And we don't really ever take the time to think about what are the implications of this event, this extraordinary event uh, that I believe rewrote the fabric of the universe altogether. I don't say that lightly. I believe that it's an event of immense magnitude. getting ahead of myself. But I believe that in this message today, we're going to be able to see that. So if you have your Bibles... Um, I want you to turn to John chapter 20. It's also going to be on the screen. Bradley read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts this morning uh, before we started service, and I'm going to be reading from John. So we're going to get the whole enchilada today. Uh, Let's just go ahead and dive right into it. John 20, starting at verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped in and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, you notice that he keeps bragging about himself. The disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until then they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she stopped and looked in. She saw two white robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, he said, or she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary... Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. 
Do not cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the, to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this day. God, I thank you so much for the time we've already had together. What if we all just packed up our stuff and left right now? We would have already had church. Or we've already met with you and your spirit. But I do pray in these next few moments as we look into your word, God, that you would reveal to us the power of your resurrection, the power of your redemption. Lord, help us to see things with a clearer eye view today, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, in today's resurrection passage, we read about the resurrected Jesus, of course. And he's outside of the tomb, and he approaches Mary Magdalene. And she refers to him as the gardener. So there must have been a garden there, right? I mean, why else would there be a gardener around if there wasn't a garden? So Mary Magdalene and Jesus are in the garden together. And they had this interaction, they had this encounter. She has this interaction with the resurrected Jesus in a garden. Well, there's another garden that we all know about in Scripture. Whether or not you've read the Bible or not, you're probably very familiar with it. The Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, created everything that we know from atoms and quarks all the way to oxygen, nitrogen, the elements, the grass that you mow and you hate to mow in the summer. He made that too. All of the things that we see, God created all of it, the Bible says. And God creates this garden in the narrative. It's, it's, it's kind of like the pinnacle of his creation. He sees that he's created man and woman, but they don't have anywhere to dwell. And so he creates a, creates a special dwelling place for them. He creates a special place for them to hang out. The Bible talks about it in terms of the Lord walking with them in the cool of the day. It's a place where they're supposed to have communion and relationship. The Garden of Eden was meant to be God's pinnacle of his creation. We know that it was a place that was luscious, the Bible says. It was full of trees and fruit, all kinds of plants, all kinds of everything. Had a lot going on, a lot of good going on. But as we know the story, we know what happens next, right? The good wasn't good enough for them. And they walked in disobedience. They disobeyed God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is another sermon for another time. But basically, they were giving up their dependence on God. They wanted to be independent. And so they rebelled against God. They rebelled against their maker. They rebelled against the creator so that they could go and do what they wanted to do. And we've all been there, right? We've all been there. And after this event, the Bible, the biblical story begins to spiral out of control. The next sin that happens is Cain kills Abel. And then every civilization that's built from that point on is built on the bloodshed of another. Humans are killing other humans, so much so that there ends up with the flood, and then there's, there's worldwide chaos, and it just you're reading the story, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is just so much going on. There's so much brokenness, so much brokenness. The garden that was intended to be marked by life and love, by peace and tranquility, by obedience and harmony, was not that anymore. Let me say that again. This is what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be, marked by life and love, peace and tranquility, obedience and harmony, but Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We all know that. And so rather than being marked by these good things, we know the Garden of Eden as being marked by sin and shame, by nakedness and fear, by disobedience and brokenness. 
The biblical story, when you read it, is not one of peaches and cream. As they disobey God, their lives get dramatically worse from that point on. The Garden of Eden was supposed to be God's pinnacle of creation. But in all reality, it's the pinnacle of brokenness. Really, the way the Bible tells it, it's the root of all human brokenness. That somehow, some way, the brokenness in our world, coronavirus, racism, hatred, strife, murder, all of it somehow is connected back to these deep roots of disobedience against God. So we have this garden in Eden that is entirely broken. And then we fast forward ourselves to John chapter 20. And we see interaction, as I've already said, between the resurrected Jesus and Mary Magdalene in a garden. The Garden of Eden represented God's first creation, but the garden outside the tomb represented his new creation. Let me say that again. The Garden of Eden represented God's first creation, but it was broken. And so the garden outside of the tomb represents God's new creation. The creative work that he has done in and through Jesus Christ that he intended to do through Adam and Eve, that he intended to have this relationship in which humans and God would dwell in one, uh, with one another purely and fully. But what we know about Jesus Christ is that in Jesus Christ, God and man dwell one in another. The Bible says that it pleased God that the fullness of God would dwell in Christ Jesus. So we know that in one man, all of God and humanity is wrapped up. The garden outside of the tomb is God's new creation. And how do I know this? Well, John is a poet. Any of you in here ever read the Gospels? Just, yeah, yeah, right? No shame if you haven't. But I want to tell you this morning that they're not all exactly the same. They're each written by different individuals that have different angles by which they're telling the same story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels. They tell a more logical story, a more historical telling, a more, more of a story backed up by sources. And, you know, I went and talked to so-and-so, and they have testified to this. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels. Well, John has a different, he beats to a different drum. You ever met those kind of people? They're just a little bit different. A little bit different. And that's John, the way that he tells his story. An example of this would be, we know that within Holy Week, one of the first things that Jesus does is he overthrows the tables in the temple and he drives out the animals and the money changers. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is told at the beginning of Holy Week, but in the book of John, that is told in chapter 3. He puts it at the very beginning because he wants to set the stage of who this guy is. And so John has his own way of telling the story. John is not the guy that puts in or leaves out a detail on purpose. And so what I believe is that John is telling us about this encounter with Mary Magdalene with a very specific detail of calling Jesus the gardener because he wants us to call back to the Garden of Eden and think about that garden. Think about that brokenness. And if you will with me this morning, think about that brokenness and that shame contrasted with the life and the resurrection. It's the redemption of the old garden. Jesus is the gardener in charge of the new garden that brings life, not death. Peace, not chaos. Love, not hate. Obedience, not disobedience. And healing, not disease. We know from the original Garden of Eden that 
all of these things ensued, all this chaos and this strife, all things that we are still feeling today. And if you don't want to take my word for it, we can talk to the Apostle Paul, who says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has, become, has come through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn over the kingdom to, kingdom to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. I want you to catch in there the contrast. Just as death came through one man, Adam, so the life of Jesus, so the life of the resurrection comes through another man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. I want you to get that this morning, that, that what was lost in the Garden of Eden was redeemed in the garden outside of the tomb. And what you and I face as a result of that, we now this morning celebrate. You might be like, why is everybody so happy? Why is everybody singing so loud? Why, is, why are some people jumping up and down and stuff? It's because we're very, very excited this morning because death had had. Death had the final word until 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, your Savior and my Savior hung on that cross, and he died a death. We don't want to skim over that point. We're very, very quick to do that. He died. Like, he, he died. Many of you have had people that died. Dead. Dead. Not breathing. No heartbeat. He died. But this morning... We are celebrating. Why? Because death does not have the final word. That is the point of Easter. That's the point of resurrection. That's the point of the great hope that we had this morning is that death does not have the last word, that death does not have the final word over your life and my life and all the people that you thought about whenever I said they were dead, the people that came to your mind. Death does not have the final word over them either. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, hell, where is your sting, right? That's what the Bible says. We have a great, great hope this morning because of what Jesus has done. This is something that we celebrate. So if you're in here and think we're weird, I think you're weird because we got something to, we got something to celebrate today, folks. We got something that we have actually got to celebrate. Everybody's so excited when the Chiefs go to the Super Bowl. Not when they lose, but whenever something amazing happens in the sports world or maybe you get a raise at work or, or you get a great doctor's report. We're excited about those things and we should be, but how much more should we be excited because the fabric of the universe has been rewritten. Up until this point, death had the final word. There was no hope. There was no hope, but now we have a blessed hope. We have a blessed hope. We have a blessed hope because of what Jesus has done. He has redeemed us. He has restored us. But how has he redeemed us? I want to I I hit this real quick. Because to you, you might be like, well, Jesus, you know, he's alive. But wait, what does that mean for me? Have you ever heard the phrase, God cannot look upon sin? Anybody? Anybody heard that? Heard that? It comes from an Old Testament uh, verse. Uh, one of the prophets says, God cannot look upon sin. And, and the prophet is talking to God, and he says, God cannot look upon sin, so why do you? He's asking him a question, not making a statement. Because what we see in the life of Christ is that Christ is the incarnate word of God. 
That's what John says, is that basically the logos, the mind of God, was birthed into our world via Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes, and what does he do? He, you know, the phrase God cannot look upon sin just doesn't make any sense when you look in, in the phrase, in the context of Jesus' life, because all Jesus did all day long was look at sinners. Luke 15.1, the Pharisees were mad because he ate and drank with sinners. That Jesus surrounded himself with sinners. Jesus went, he went around sinners and he hung out with them. Why? Because Jesus must enter into sin in order to redeem it. Jesus must enter into your condition and my condition in order so that he might redeem it. How can Jesus go in and how can he save something that he is not familiar with? The Bible says that he was tested and he was tried in every way that we are tested and tried, right? Do we believe that or do we not? In order for Jesus to fully redeem humanity, he had to feel the fullness of humanity. In order for Jesus to save you from your situation of your lost and dying loved ones, he had to become lost and die. He had to enter into the fullness of the human condition. And this is Easter. And I'm about to, and we, you know, we've been talking about good news and stuff like that, but we can't, we can't skim over the fact that the world is a broken place. And Jesus entered into the brokenness fully. You know, I, I think God is God, right? And so he could, he could just, no more death, right? He could, maybe, probably. But he didn't choose to do that. He didn't choose to skirt around death or to go over death, but he went right through it. And not just any death, but death by crucifixion. Death by the most torturous, the worst way to die in that day and age. What does this mean? Well, I want to submit to you this morning that Jesus had to die the way that he died. He had to fully enter into the human condition, fully enter into human shame, fully enter into human suffering. To use the analogy from earlier, he had to walk through Adam's garden before he could establish his own. He had to walk through the pain and the suffering of this life before he could ever enter us into resurrection life. He had to experience what it is like to be fully human, the pain and the suffering, the sorrow, you know, if you weren't here Good Friday, you missed it. I mean, Bradley really, really took us to the cross. Jesus was alone. He was betrayed. Nobody was there. All of his disciples left him. All of his best friends, gone. There were a few standing there, but they were helpless. You ever felt alone? You ever felt betrayed? That one person you thought that was your best friend, they talked behind your back? You ever had a family member die? Jesus' cousin John the Baptist had his head cut off. Jesus had to fully enter in to the experience that you and I have every single day. On a Tuesday, your life feels like hell. But what did Jesus do? He went into the depths of hell. He went to the depths of the grave. So that he could, and he went to that cross so that he could fully feel, so that he could fully feel what you and I have felt, so that he could fully redeem it. So that he could fully redeem it. Jesus must look upon sin. He looks straight into his eyes, he bears it, and then he transfigures it.
He recycles it. Your sin, my sin, every single person in here, I have no idea where you're at in your relationship with God. In a church this size this morning, there's many, many stories, many different walks. I don't know where you're at. But what I do know is this, is that on that cross, on Good Friday, Jesus bears the weight of the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, our sin, all of our sins, so that he might forgive it, so that he would forgive it, that on the cross he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And I do not believe that is a phrase that was just given to the Roman guards there in that vicinity, but I believe it was the eternal word of God spoken over all of creation. God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, that Jesus there bearing the character of God, bearing the sin of the world, that this is God, that is bearing your sin and my sin and, and the shame and the guilt and the evil of every single rape and murder and war and child trafficking and every single instance. I don't think we understand the weight that Jesus was under. Bradley said it beautifully on Friday that he was sweating drops of blood, not because he was afraid of death, but because he was feeling the whole weight of evil and disobedience, all of the result of the Garden of Eden on his shoulders. And so he is bearing that. And what does he do? He says, Father, Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. He takes it into himself. And he recycles it into new life. Into new life. Let's stick with the garden analogy. Jesus takes our sin and our shame. And it is the compost. It's the soil from which the new garden is birthed. Out of the ashes, beauty rises, right? Out of your sin and my sin, out of our shame, out of our guilt, out of our falling short, the beauty of the life of God bursts forth. And I want to tell you this morning that I don't know where you're at in your life. Maybe you're facing a situation right now. Maybe your marriage is broken. Maybe you haven't talked to your kids in five years. Maybe your coworkers you know, are making you so mad that you want to pull your hair out. Maybe you're in financial struggles. Maybe you have a disease or an illness. Maybe you have all of that in your life. But this morning, we have a great and mighty hope because Jesus has already conquered. Jesus has already won. We don't fight for the victory, but we fight from the victory, the victory that was won for us 2,000 years ago. Jesus has conquered death and the grave. He's conquered it. I want to put a fine point on this Adam and Eve Garden of Eden point. And this isn't just a, a Walker McCowan uh, thought. This is a thought from the early church. Um, you're going to go to the next slide, Chris. Um, next one. Maybe. I don't know. No, there's nothing. There's nothing. Okay, never mind. Well, okay, well. That's all right. Okay, so I'm going to have to improvise here. Um, yeah, I, I was really hoping, yeah. Um, perfect, okay, yeah, stand by. There we go. Okay, so this is a, 
This is the resurrection icon. Okay, I'm, yeah, good. Post this on my Instagram today. This is one of my favorite pictures. I think I'm going to get a painting of it for, for my house. Um, so what you see here, this is, like I said, this is not Walker McCowan's, like, this is not, I, I borrowed this. Everything I'm preaching today, this is just, I just borrowed this from somebody else. And it's the church fathers, okay? So this is not original to me. So if you didn't like it, you can't blame me. Um, what we see here, this is the risen Christ. And if you look at this imagery here, obviously there's a, looks like a round piano, but really it's just a, it's just a glorified uh, mosaic is what it is. And you can see there at the bottom, he's trampled down two doors. There's two doors that he's knocked down. He's knocked down two doors. And underneath of that, you can see there's a bunch of bones. Those are the doors of death. This is the, the name of this icon is called the Harrowing of Hades. And, and anybody in the audience have a guess who he's picking up? Anybody? Any brave souls? Wh- who's, whose hands are he's, is he grabbing? Adam and Eve. Jesus descends into the depths of death itself. And there he finds the mother and father of us all. Adam and Eve. And he picks them up. He picks them up and he grabs them. And he takes them out of death with them. Whatever you believe about this picture or about any of it, the fact of the matter is this, is that Jesus has gone to the very depths of humanity, to the very depths of our origins, to the very depths of who we are as humans, and has redeemed it all from the very beginning, redeemed every single bit of it. And all those people behind them, those are all people who also died. Probably Cain and Abel. Abraham, Joseph, Isaac, the whole lot. Jesus pulling them out of death. So what does this mean for you? I'm going to wrap up my message with this. What does this mean for you? Jesus was talking to Mary and Martha, whenever he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? Jesus Christ, the gardener, the one who brings life and life more abundantly, is calling out to you today. Like I said, every person faces different brokenness and different places in their life. But I believe today, more certain than I ever have been about anything, that Jesus is alive and that he's calling out to you. And if we'll take a minute to look away from our distracting cell phones, and our Netflix, and our busy lives, and our jobs, and our finances, and even our marriages and our children. If you will look within yourself, if you will seek out this Jesus, I firmly believe that he will speak to you today because he is alive. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question I want to leave you with today. Do you believe this? I think the answer to that question has so many implications 
for our lives. Something I've been doing lately that I think will benefit you. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I'll tell you. Every morning on my mirror, I have written, ask yourself, is Jesus alive today? And if he is, also ask yourself, what does this mean for my life today? What does this mean for my life today? Because every single day, every single day, we have the choice to answer the question of, that Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? So uh, we're going to enter into a time of communion here. I'm going to ask if the band will come back up. I told you it was going to be short and sweet. Man of my word, right?